You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Jessica Toku Ingoa, no mai hari mai kiti waia mō rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Ratu Tuesday. I'm your host Jessica and I'll be with you for the next hour. I'm also joined by producers Casta and Sophia and Sophia is joining us on The Wire for the first time today. Ifai Akine coming up on the show for Dear Science this week, Dr. Kushla McGovern chats to us about Northern Patagonian rock art, an inchworm-inspired robot, and the FDA approving the first medication to treat severe frostbite. Kester, what have you got for us today? I speak to Nationals James Meager about gang patch legislation and the clean card discount repeal. And Sophia, how was your first wire shift? Good so far. That's good to hear. We're happy to have you. What have you got for us today? I speak to co-chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa, Lisa Te Morenga, about the repeal of the smoke-free legislation and current legal requirements for public policy making transparency in New Zealand. He aha ofakaro. We would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. Get in touch, tukupatuhi mai, text in on 5395 or wire my rane. Give us a call in the studio on 309-387-9-ka-oe-i-wari-wari-e-ahe-ana-koutou-te-whakaronga-o-ki-ene-kororo-ano-hi-paki-hiri-roki-roki-maronga-i-te-pai-tuku-tuku-o-iriangi-poho
lines, vertical lines with a perpendicular horizontal line above, so like a comb. And they were a bit faded, so they weren't the nicest examples of the rock art because what they needed to do was take a little bit of a sample, take a bit of a chip off. And so what they've done is they've taken that chip off and they've put it under just a standard microscope to have a look at it first. And why you're doing this is you just want to make sure that the layer of paint that you're analysing is from the rock art and not something that's just been put on top of it over time, you know, like if someone's had a campfire in that cave. And so they found that, no, this hadn't happened, like the paint they were going to look at was good. Now they wanted to date it. Now the, th the dating method that we often know about is carbon dating. As the name implies, you need some carbon, mm. right? So first they did some tests to make sure that there was, this was what do you call carbonaceous. Um, so they did a technique called Raman spectroscopy, which is basically shining a laser at this paint chip and um, seeing what sort of light comes back. And this implied that it was, that there was carbon, it was amorphous carbon, and that it was likely from plants, not one of the ways that these, you know, you think about um, coal and it's black and you can use it to make marks on the rock and stuff. Um, one of the ways that people produce these carbonaceous materials for rock art and such in the past was you could use plant material and burn it or you could use bone and burn it. But these spectra indicated it probably wasn't bone because it, a signal you'd expect wasn't there. So. That's good. And then they also use what's called scanning electron microscopy, which is basically lets you see things in very, very fine detail. And so they could see that in this material, it looked like there were probably once plant cells. Um, and so then they were like, right, cool. There's carbon, we can use carbon dating. And so they carbon dated these four different pieces of rock art and were really surprised by the results. Basically the oldest one was about 8,000 years ago, which they weren't expecting. And then they, these four pieces of rock art, like the youngest one was about 3,000 years after the 8,000 years, so like 5,000 years ago. And so it kind of implies that people were going back to this cave over time, which they just, they wouldn't have known if they hadn't have looked at this rock art. Um, and so, yeah, basically they were quite surprised and it's kind of changing the way they see this area because it was also a time that this area was really arid. So like these people were like, 3,000 years represents about 130 human generations. So it's, it's quite, for the archeologists, it's really interesting in terms of their interpretation of what's been there and what the rock art is and how these um, civilizations, all these people lived, these nomadic people. But yeah. So. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about what was happening 3,000 years ago. Yeah. Can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very cool. No, that's really awesome. And I also wanted to hear about what some roboticists have created. It's an inchworm-inspired robot with enhanced transport capabilities. Kushler, what does this mean? <laughs> so why this caught my eye was because I always like a paper that's got a video. Mm. And so you're like, robotic robots moving, there's got to be a video in there. And it was kind of interesting. So this is this represents a subfield of robotics. So if we think about robotics, we often think of you know the things that are used industrially or wall-e or such, you know, they're hard. Well, you don't always want your robots to be made of hard materials that will injure you if you not get knocked over by them or such. So you, there's a subfield called soft robotics where they're using materials that are um, pliable or compliant and deformable. And so this is what this was an example of. And I had visions like an inchworm. If you think about like how a caterpillar moves, that's what the inchworm movement is, you know, like it, 
anchors its front feet and it kind of drags up its back end and it becomes like a omega sort of shape and then it anchors its back end and it pushes forward its front feet end and it moves that way so that's what i thought the robot was going to look like it didn't um yeah i saw the picture it's quite a bizarre looking thing isn't it yeah Can you no. describe it for our listeners so it's basically like a cylinder that's got different segments so kind of like a caterpillar in that regard mm. um but instead of like forming that sort of omega that u upside down sort of u shape what it does is it kind of just um when you watch it it's like it's um contracting one segment and extending another segment and the movement is actually the object going through the cylinder thing so the robot itself kind of stays in the one spot but it moves the object through it and the way to kind of think about it i think is if you think about your intestine so your intestines are just a big big long tube they're really really long but all packed into your body and if you think about it the way that they work is these muscles that um, have the axial contraction so they squeeze in or these longitudinal muscles so they're kind of like pushing stuff forward and that's how stuff goes down your intestinal system so that's where this kind of robot design in some ways started but what these um, scientists did was they then looked at the inchworm and how it's moving like what it contracts and elongates and adapted that um, series of movements to this more intestinal looking thing to then show that if they optimize the parameters associated with this robot that they could have it carry 100 grams whereas previously these things would be about topping out at about 40 grams and at a whopping speed of um, like nine millimeters per second which kind of you kind of go oh really but it's actually quite an advance like the previous ones were kind of more around the two millimeters per second and so it's, it's one of these great examples of biomimicry like where science looks at what nature's already doing and says okay how can we adapt those things mm. and that's really what that's what it's doing yes yeah, so how could we see this robot or this sort of function be used in practice so i think that with the kind of the authors of the paper are kind of heading towards is the fact that you could like if you extend the length of this thing you can move things over a much longer distance over quite a varied surface um and reasonably gently for the object that's in it um so that's where you know like it's deformable so you're moving it along you're not going to damage whatever it is if something needs to be um you need to be particularly careful with something uh and yeah so it's those sort of applications but um yeah not not a little robot that's going to be moving along your surface of your bent desk or your bench sort of thing no so we're not going to see like the like the google alexa no is it amazon i'm not sure no we're not going to get them in our home anytime soon no yeah. no no, no <laughs> not anytime soon no because the other thing like i didn't mention when i was describing it is that it's got a whole lot of tubes off it yeah. anchored to like this box and it's basically the the muscles that this robot is using they're called a mcgibbon artificial muscle and it's all based on using basically pumping air into a bladder that makes up these muscles that then causes this contraction and elongation. So again, that's why it's not going to be running off anywhere soon. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And then lastly, the FDA's approved a medication to treat severe frostbite. What's the significance of this going to be? So um, probably in New Zealand, not going to affect us too much. Yeah. Like, so the FDA, just for clarification, is the United States Food and Drug Administration. So, but a lot of the um, pharmaceuticals around the globe, we, we take a lot of our 
um, notice of what the FDA does. Um, and so why this is really cool is because it's an example of a repurposed drug. So when you develop a new drug, you have to do a lot of safety testing. We all know this from um, COVID and the vaccinations, right? Like there was a lot of testing and stuff before it got rolled out to the population. Um, and what happens though is that over, like because this requires a lot of expense because you're testing and there's a lot of ethical considerations you're testing on humans. Um, we always try and, well, not me, but pharma, pharmaceutical companies and doctors and people in the medical fields look for other ways that drugs can be, these um, molecules can be used to treat things. And this is a really great example of this where you've got frostbite. So frostbite um, is, yeah, not a big problem in New Zealand, but in other countries where it gets really cold, it is a big problem. And there's been no approved drug treatment or therapy for frostbite. And so now, now that there is this um, Eloprost, which basically was a drug that was invented for treating high blood pressure in the lungs. Um, and so it's, I saw a reference where back in 2014, the people were kind of suggesting you could use it for um, treating severe frostbite. So frostbite goes from something delightfully called frost nip which is just when you'll recover. You, your fingers and your extremities get cold. It's a bit more than what we'd suffer here in New Zealand unless you're up on a mountain. Um, and then it gets obviously really bad where that's when you've probably seen the pictures of people's skin kind of goes black and they have to get amputated, um, the, the limb or their extremities. Um, and so, yeah, basically why what they observed that maybe this drug helps and so they did a clinical trial and the only 47 patients, so not a big number, but they divided these, these 47 patients all had severe frostbite. So you can imagine you're not gonna have big numbers in these clinical trials because someone has to have severe frostbite in the start. Um, and they divided these uh, people into three groups. One group got this Ileoprost, this um, drug. Uh, one group didn't get any sort of drug treatment in the other group kind of got a combination of Ileoprost and other medications. And what was really surprising is that in the group that got this Ileoprost only, none of them had to have amputations. Whereas in the group that got no treatment, like 60% of them had amputations. Gosh, you'd hate to be in that group, wouldn't you? You would, you'd feel <laughs> a bit ripped off, right? Yeah. But um, I think it's because like the ethics of it is because the the, the treatment's not approved anyway, so mm -hmm. like these people were always going to be in a bad situation. It's kind of more yeah. some got lucky, um, yeah. but yeah, you'd still be a bit bit of a gamble. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, and so because it's already gone through the safety testing, we have nothing else. Um, the results were so kind of stunning in a way. That's why it's then been approved for um, treating frostbite. And, and, it, and it makes sense that it would work as well. So basically what happens, our bodies have evolved so that when we get really, really cold, um, we basically, our, we get vasoconstriction in our extremities. So you don't lose a lot of heat. You wanna keep your core body and the blood in your core warm. So you don't wanna lose your heat through your fingers and your toes and your face. And so that's why you get this vasoconstriction. And this is where the problems come in because you've got no blood flow going there. Um, and so this, this drug, Ileoprost, is a vasodilator, dilator, so it reverses this. So you think, great, right? But that's not the full story. If you just reverse this process, you actually cause more damage 
because what happens is you suddenly get all this blood going back to these extremities. So this blood is carrying oxygen. You've got all this more this oxygen getting back to these extremities and you get what's called oxidative stress. So you produce these um, oxi oxygen species that you don't want that do more damage. What's kind of good about this Elioprost is though, it actually reduces this oxidative stress. So there's kind of two ways that it's working. And so because they have this also this mechanistic idea of how it's working, that's also helped it get this FDA approval. Mm. Do we know if frostbite and frostnip are medical terms? Because it's quite a cute sounding name for something quite <laughs> terrifying. Well, yeah, no, so I'm not sure. Frostbite definitely is, yeah. but um, frostnip, it, it pops up on like Mayo Clinic. So that's like a well-known yeah. clinic in the US. It pops up on their websites and stuff, but I don't know if it's, I think it might be like a grade one, two, three situation of okay. frostbite and yeah. one's the lowest, yeah. Even frostbite though, I feel like it's like very, it's not quite... I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll rename it here right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. All right, well, thank you so much, Kushla, and thank you, Motet, and thank you, Science. Thanks. We'll be right back after this short break. Well, I didn't know Dear Science, thanks to Motet, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Yeah. 
Recircle is Aotearoa's first second-hand supermarket. And they can sell your clothes, household items, records, toys and more. You can rent a stall at Recircle to sell your treasures or shop for awesome second-hand stuff. Recircle is serious about second-hand shopping. Are you? Find them in person at 4 Galatos Street behind K Road or online at recircle.nz. Motar and Auckland Zoo are taking your Thursday night to new heights by teaming up for aviation and zoo lates. Enjoy guided tours of the Aviation Hall at Motat, airtime stories with Rainbow Rascals and more. Then catch the free tram to Zoo Late for a walk on the wild side. Aviation Lates, this Thursday from 4pm till 8pm. And every Thursday till March 7th. Book now at motat.nz forward slash lates. Hi, I'm Ken. Hi, Ken. It's been six months since I've listened to gin. Not going to lie, I still miss it. The feeling when the primo tunes are pouring out. The smooth grooves, the weird songs have got flute in them. Hey, what's that in his ear? M my ear? N what? That's a headphone. No, no, no. This no. guy's hooning some gin right now. No, 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 out if this guy's gonna have some gin, I want some too. No, no, you're gonna yeah. want Everyone loves a bit of gin, and no one's gonna blame you if you take an earful every Tuesday from 1 till 4. Gin plays all the good notes that go down easy with a lingering vibed out aftertaste. The Tuesday 1 to 4 with Gin, thanks to the same old Ponsonby Social Club. Zambian rock band Witch are heading to New Zealand and they intend to cause havoc. Plus, we have tickets to give away to a lucky B-card holder. Just listen to 95 BFM Breakfast all week for your cue to enter. Witch, playing live at Hollywood Avondale, March 13th. Get your tickets from Banished Music. The Wire. Kia ora, welcome back. You're listening to The Wire, 95 BFM's news and current affairs show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of our pieces. Text in on 5395. Now it's time for our weekly catch-up with National Party MP James Meager. In my weekly interview with Nationals James Meager, I begin with Nationals' promised ban on wearing gang patches in public. The ban is due to come later this year as a part of a bundle of legislation aimed at reducing gang presence in communities. A similar law was passed by the Whanganui District Council in 2009, which was later reviewed by the High Court and found to be unlawful and in violation of the Bill of Rights. We then briefly discussed Labour's clean car discount, which was repealed by the national government on the 31st of December last year. Ministry of Transport data shows that registrations of new electric vehicles have decreased from 1 in 4 in 2023 to 1 in 26 in January this year. Here is that interview. Just a refresher for our listeners, what is the gang patch legislation actually trying to address? Yeah, good morning. So, look, government's going to try and implement uh, legislation to ban all gang insignia in public places, um, and that's with the aim of ensuring that New Zealanders feel safe in their own communities. And it's actually part of a wider package. So police are always also going to be able to get powers to issue dispersal notices, so that'll be um, powers for, to require gangs to uh, leave an area where they're gathering or consorting, and there'll also be legislation to um, for the courts to issue non-consorting orders, which will... Uh, force gangs to not have contact or particular gang members not to have contact with each other. And the overall driver behind this is to try and disrupt the uh, growth in gang activity that we've seen in the country. 
over the past few years. Uh, we know that gangs are criminal organisations and we don't see a place for them in our community. Is this a big issue that people are wearing these patches in public? Well, I think the issue is gang activity in the first place and what the patches signify is that harassment and intimidation that gangs like to try and put out there, out in the community. Um, I mean, they are, they are in, in their industry for a reason, right? And that's to sow fear and um, intimidation through our communities so that they can bully their way around and get their way around. Well, it's not welcome in our communities. So by removing that part of what it means to be a gang member, we hope that we can discourage and try and actually get them off our streets. How are the police going to be equipped to enforce this legislation? Yeah, so we had uh, Commissioner Andrew Costa before the Select Committee, uh, Justice Committee a couple of weeks ago, and the police are very much in favour of increased ability to deal with gangs. They find it very difficult, or have found it very difficult in the past, to deal with a gang presence uh, when there is there is no um, active crime being uh, committed. So uh, the commissioner is very, very pleased, I think, with um, the moves that the government's heading in. And essentially, the, the police will just be resourced. We're going to uh, uh, hire 500 more police over the next two years. So that will help bolster frontline staffing in our constabulary. And then, of course, the police are highly skilled. We've got some of the greatest police in the world, and they will be able to use the tactical um, operations and experience that they have to order to deal with the problem. When a patch ban was trialled in Whanganui, in 2009, the Hells Angels later asked the High Court to review the law, and the High Court ruled that the law was inconsistent with the Bill of Rights. Um, what would happen if the High Court reached the same decision on the current legislation? Well, the High Court can't. So what happened in the Wanganui uh, case was that was bylaw by councils, and bylaws are reviewable by the courts. Um, primary legislation, due to Parliament being sovereign, is not reviewable by the courts, so it's just not a possibility. Right, but still, how would you respond to the idea that this gang patch legislation was inconsistent with the Bill of Rights and unlawful? Well, it won't be unlawful. So we've got to be key on that. Parliament is sovereign. Parliament makes the laws. When Parliament passes a law, that is what it is. No courts can declare a law to be um, inapplicable or unlawful. What courts have been doing in the recent past is issuing declarations of inconsistency where they do a balancing exercise where they think, and bear in mind these are the courts, and I've got to be cautious about what I say about the courts, but the courts will issue their opinion on whether or not they think on balance um, the restrictions on rights are justified in a free and democratic society. So that's the extent of it. Uh, ultimately, when, when Parliament passes the law, it is the law, and we expect people to comply with it. There's a few other policies towards gangs, obviously, that you mentioned earlier, uh, that the National Party is uh, passing in a, in a bundle together. One of these policies would prevent gang members from communicating or associating with one another upon court order. How would this work if it's two gang members, let's say, that are related? Well, it would be the same way that you have um, uh, protection orders and non-harassment orders in place for every other individual and every other court order. The court will order and require an individual to do or not do something and then the individual must comply. I think uh, there are a lot of questions around um, how, how the law is going to be implemented and how pe why, why would people obey this. Well, the law is the law, and we expect people to obey and, and, um, and follow the law. We all do it as law-abiding citizens, so we should expect anyone subject to a court order to do so as well. And if they breach those orders, then it's up to the police and up to the courts to, to um, provide the relevant remedy and enforce it. At the end of last year, the National Party scrapped Labor's clean car discount. Could you elaborate a little bit why that happened? Yeah, so we got rid of the Ute tax because we thought it was an unfair distribution of wealth, basically, from poor to rich. So if you think of the majority of people who 
run around in um, in utes or um, sort of in petrol vehicles, diesel vehicles. They are your tradies, your farmers, um, second-hand vehicles, predominantly middle to lower income people. And then when you think about who runs around in Teslas and um, hybrids and Priuses, they are your middle-class, higher-income, wealthy, urban, sort of liberal um, city people. And so when you when you put a discount on those EVs and a tax on the utes, then all you're doing is you're transferring the wealth from the ute owner uh, and the working people to the people who are getting the um, discount on their EVs. So we thought that was an unfair distribution. We thought that... Um, you know, if, if you're going out and working for New Zealand and you're in tax, then you shouldn't be unfairly penalised just because you have to use a truck or a ute for your business. That was the main reason. The other reason is that we don't necessarily think that we need as many government incentives in place to encourage EVs. We're more focused on rolling out charging networks and making sure the infrastructure is in place and um, creating more renewable electricity so that people themselves can make that choice to take up EVs. I mean, it would be, a, a, for anyone living in a city, they'd be a great op- option. Uh, take an EV, uh, you reduce your petrol costs, you charge it up at home, it's, it's probably lower cost of living. But for people who live in rural electrics like mine, it's not a re- realistic um, and viable option at the moment. You've got to travel a long, long way and there's not the infrastructure in place. And sometimes the EVs just don't do the job you need them to do. So that's that a couple of the main reasons that we thought we'd change that law. Mm, so with those incentives to buy EVs, electric vehicles last year were about one in four new vehicles purchased. Um, this year, in the first month, they've gone to about one in 26. So it's clear that there's been some kind of drop, I guess. How would you respond to that? Yeah, well, there's, when you make something cheaper, people are going to buy more of it. I think that's the whole point of the something in the first place. Um, but at the same token, when you make things more expensive, like when you make utes and everything more expensive, you increase the cost of living on those people who then have to pay more for the utes and the petrol vehicles. And then that flows on to their own cost of living, their groceries, their um, renting out. So, yeah, it's, it's probably going to have an impact. The other thing is you, you can't really tell without doing some sort of um, controlled study the exact impact the discount had on purchasing electric vehicles. We were already on the pathway to purchasing and increasing our electric vehicle fleet. And you know, people can still make up their mind if they think it's a good economic proposition to them, if they're going to save a lot of money by not spending more on petrol, then they should go for it. They should buy an EV, buy a hybrid, buy whatever suits them. But what we don't think the government should be doing is um, making those decisions for them and forcing people's hands one way or the other. That was the National Party's James Meager speaking about National's gang patch legislation and the repeal of the clean car discount. That was our catch-up with National Party MP James Meager. Because that, that's the big deal here. Dolphin orgies. <laughs> we'll be back after this break. Keep it on the B. Touch me, make me want to stay. Yeah, Mm-hmm. 
Experimental metal band Mr. Bungle make their highly anticipated return with the raging wrath of Australia and New Zealand tour. Live at the Auckland Town Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. The Bungles are set to thrash with an electrifying performance and wild antics. Mr. Bungle joined by fellow pop stars Melvins at the Auckland Town Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. Complete tour and ticket information, visit livenation.co.nz. New Zealand Maritime Museum, Hui Te Ananui a Tangaroa, presents Always Song in the Water. Immerse yourself in the captivating world of Always Song in the Water, an art exhibition that celebrates Moana Oceania through the work of renowned artists, including Robin White, John Pulley, and John Reynolds. Ending soon, so make sure you check it out before it waves goodbye. New Zealand Maritime Museum. Hui te Ananui a Tangaroa. Always song in the water. On now till 10th of March. I can't believe you've done this. What? I was telling Denise about that one time that you hung out with the Beths at the Silver Scrolls. And that was our secret. And she said that she'd heard the same story on 95 BFM Breakfast. I can explain. Now I find out our anniversary mixtape was just the show playlist from last Thursday. Honey, it's a coincidence. Look me in the eye and tell me... You've never even met Rick Breeze, have you? Don't make me not like this. It's over. The Secret's out. 95 BFM Breakfast with Rachel and producer Stella. Everything you need to kickstart your morning. Weekdays 7 till 10am, only on 95 BFM. Why should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. The Wire. Kia ora and welcome back to The Wire. Last week, a public servant at the Ministry of Health who leaked an official document was dismissed. The leaked document showed the Associate Minister of Health, Casey Costello, requesting advice on freezing the annual increase in tobacco excise tax. 
Health Coalition Aotearoa has released a consultation document advocating options to address and improve transparency and public policy making and the regulation of lobbying in New Zealand. I speak to co-chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa and Professor of Māori Health and Nutrition at Massey University, Lisa Te Morenga, about the co coalition government's plans to repeal the smoke-free legislation and the current legal requirements for public policy making transparency in Aotearoa. For those who don't know, could you please explain the leaked information to the media last week and how the Ministry of Health has justified the dismissal of the public servant responsible? Okay, so before um, I get on to the leak, I just note that we, Health Coalition Aotearoa, had put in an Official Information Act request to get hold of all correspondence between Casey Costello and the Ministry of Health and Shane Reti and the Ministry of Health regarding any advice that she'd received about the repeal of the, the smoke-free laws. And we got a response back from the Ombudsman, I think, saying that, or the Minister, we got a response back anyway, um, saying that they weren't going to release that information because they wanted to protect the privacy of ministry officials and they felt that the information wasn't of sufficient public interest. And so this ministry person, at the same time, allegedly leaked some information about that repeal to Guy on Espinner, who was doing a, a piece on this for Radio New Zealand. And in it, we saw that Casey Costello was seeking advice on stopping the increase in excise taxes on tobacco. So tobacco prices go up every year, and this is a really effective way of getting people to quit. So she was seeking advice on that. And if, we, if this person hadn't broke their rules of their business, and I don't condone them doing that, they hadn't broken the rules, we wouldn't have known anything about Casey Costello seeking this advice. And the, we think this is very much in the public interest, despite what was said to us, because the only people who are ever asking for a halt to the increase in excise taxes, I guess apart from some smokers, is the tobacco industry. And that's because it is known to be one of the most effective tools we have at helping people to quit. And just stopping the excise taxes um, wouldn't actually help smokers anyway because those who are you know, already paying, buying smokes with the excise taxes that they've got will be stuck as smokers continuing to pay high taxes. Whereas we want smokers to be able to quit you know, to use whatever mechanisms we can to help smokers quit, because we know that most smokers want to quit, have tried to quit, and can't quit. Has the leaked information given us any indicators of the coalition government's plans for repealing smoke-free and the direction tobacco laws in New Zealand might go? I think they've made it very clear that they, from the day the coalition was announced, they made it clear they were going to repeal the smoke-free laws. But what it's showing us is that there seems to be some sort of influence here from the tobacco industry. There are just too many tie-ups here. Um, the arguments that the government makes justifying the repeal are straight out of the tobacco industry playbook. So the claim that we're going to see a rise in crime 
as a result of having fewer shops selling tobacco is the tobacco industry line. Logically, it doesn't make sense. If you've got fewer stores with better security selling tobacco, um, we would expect crime rates to go down. <laughs> um, and in fact, the evidence is showing that RAM rating and, and crime on shops is coming down anyway. So we don't think it would go up. The other thing about the black market, well, we've already got a black market in New Zealand. We all know that there are people all around the world trying to scam us out of our money. We've got you know, people doing internet scams on us. And there are people who can get hold of cheap tobacco in other countries that do not have our strong tobacco control laws. We're hoping to bring this in to make a quick buck. That doesn't mean... I mean, that suggests to me it's not these super laws that would drive up the black market, but the fact that other countries aren't doing the right thing. They've got tobacco industry in their back pocket, basically. And the logic fails also in that these laws are designed to help people quit. So if we have people quitting, there's actually a much smaller demand for tobacco and the black market, and also much less sort of value in cigarettes that are being sold in shops anyway. So those those arguments are, you know, real classic tobacco industry lines that aren't supported by the evidence and our government keeps rolling them out as a reason for repealing this law. And then that excise tax advice that Casey Costello is seeking, just another piece of that evidence, really making us wonder what influence the tobacco industry has had on getting this law repealed. You've talked a bit about Health Coalition Aotearoa's efforts. Can you explain the Official Information Act and the current legal requirements for transparency in public policy making in New Zealand? Well, we don't. We actually have very poor laws in New Zealand relative to other countries around transparency. I mean, you can request an Official Information Act request to get hold of documentation, but there are always limits that can be used to... Uh, limit the power that, that you obtaining that information could have. So, for instance, we have put in an Official Information Act request to Casey Costello for more information around advice that she's received relating to this repeal. And she has used the laws to push back the dates by which she has to respond to us until after the repeal has gone through. feels a little bit like it's taking the piss. And in the case of the public servants, um, protecting public servants, yeah, you know, that is a legitimate argument that public servants are supposed to be politically neutral and they should be able to give free and frank advice to government ministers without additional public scrutiny. But there are instances where things are very much in the public interest. And this is very much in the public interest because... It's come out of the blue. The government didn't campaign on repealing these laws. In fact, the national government supported the well. They supported aspects of the laws, such as the denicotinisation. So I think the public was very interested to know why they are so determined to repeal this law under urgency without a due process without allowing the public to comment and also knowing that a huge proportion of their supporters also do not support this repeal. We've done polls. We know that something like 70% of New Zealanders do not support the repeal of these laws and the proportion is over 50% of National Party voters do not support the repeal of these laws. 
So the government really has no mandate for it. There's no public opinion, uh, no public thirst for it. So who does want the repeal of these laws? You've got to find yourself asking, don't you? And Health Coalition Aotearoa has released a consultation document providing options to address this. Could you please explain what this is advocating and any next steps for the Health Coalition on this topic? Ah, uh, yes. So we we have a separate piece of work. So we are very much advocating to stop the repeal of the repeal. That the repeal is going to go through. But another piece of work we have been doing is looking at what we can do to improve the transparency around policy making in New Zealand. So we want better laws so that we can find out who ministers have been seeking advice from, who's been paying for their advice, who's been getting to talk to ministers and exert influence over them. So at the moment there's there's nothing really that gives us a legal mechanism through which we can scrutinise what's happening in government in terms of policy making. So we have a document up on our website, our Coalition Aotearoa website, where you can go and read about what we're proposing to do to strengthen transparency and public policy making. And you can have a say on whether or not you agree. And all you poll students out there, I'd certainly urge you to go and have a look and have a think about what we're proposing here. And join us if you like our work. That was Health Coalition Aotearoa's Lisa Te Morenga speaking about the coalition government's plans to repeal the smoke-free legislation and public policy making transparency in Aotearoa, New Zealand. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hōtaka katoa mō tēnei wiki nei te mihi ki a koutou katoa i kōrero mai ki o mō tēnei rā. That's a wrap on this Tuesday Wire. Thank you to everyone who spoke with us today. Dr Kushla McGovern, Nationals James Miga and co-chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa, Lisa Te Moringa. Nei rā hoki te mihi ki a koutou e whakarongoana. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to 95BFM. Next up is the 1 to 4. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.